0: Thank you. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more. For more information, please visit us at wine2wine.net.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this week my guest is Tom Wark of Wark Communications, the fermentation blog, and also the National Association of Wine Retailers, NAWR.
2: Thanks, and it's good to be here. Uh, I've, uh, I've listened to the podcast quite a bit, so I'm excited to be on.
1: Well, cool. Thanks. We first met, I don't know if you remember, I do, um, at an event called Vino 2009 in New York City. On a panel discussion. And I didn't know you from Adam at the time. And it was talking about three tier system issues and distribution. And all of a sudden this guy next to me started talking and it was like a hurricane next
2: to me. (laughs) Whoa,
1: where did he come from? He certainly has opinions. I was kind of not a newbie to the industry, but certainly to that conversation.
2: This was the panel where it was you and me and a member of the Wine and Spirit Wholesalers of America, right? Yeah. And it was a a panel about the three tier system if I'm not mistaken.
1: And the other person that was there was Bill Earl of uh, National Association of Beverage Importers. Yes, exactly.
2: That's right, yeah. I, I remember that very, very clearly. This is not an unusual thing for me, Steve, where I'm on a panel and I appear to be the odd man out and I appear to be the person with all these opinions. And the reason that is, is my opinions tend to be a little bit different than those people who are dependent upon the three-tier system to make a living.
1: Just a little bit different. Well, speaking about uh, making a living, why don't you give us a short bio of... uh, Tom worked the PR guy. Tom worked the uh, three-tier system guy, and any of the other things that, that you're doing related to the business.
2: Sure. So I got into the wine industry in 1990 after I graduated from San Francisco State University. Um, I immediately went to work for a wine public relations firm in Santa Rosa, California, and we handled usually wineries and maybe uh, some associations or events. But after it took me three years to do the math and to look at how much I was being paid, how much my salary was versus how much The clients that I was servicing were paying the firm, and I saw the imbalance. And so I decided to start my own firm, took a few clients with me. And so since 1993, um, I've worked as an independent public and media um, relations consultant to the wine industry. And so that went all fine. And then in 2004, I decided that everybody in the world needed to know what I thought about things. So I started a blog. And it was focused primarily on the wine industry and the wine business. And I spoke a lot about or wrote a lot about regulations, direct shipping, et cetera, the three-tier system. Then there was the Grand Home v. Heald Supreme Court decision. And a lot of people, including retailers, thought that they would finally get their direct shipping rights. Turns out retailers didn't. And they started an association called the National Association of Wine Retailers. They sought me out to be the executive director. And I was happy. Um, to do that. So since 2007, I've acted as the executive director of NAWR as well as kept my, um, consult, PR consultancy. And of course, I've been writing my, my blog, which is now a a Substack newsletter since 2004. And so I've worked with a lot of different facets of the industry. A lot of it has to do with regulatory issues and, of course, a lot of it having to do simply with marketing, public relations and media relations issues.
1: Well, congratulations for being one of the early ones to do blogs and to maintain it for 18 years. I know the challenge of doing anything for 18 years, but but writing uh, a blog for 18 years is significant. You're one of the few that... uh, can claim that title and Alder Yarrow is, is another one that comes to mind and there's a few others.
2: I think Alder and I were one of the first, you know, four or five people who started blogging regularly. Um, I try to keep to a schedule of um, every other day publishing.
1: Wow. God bless you. Okay. So let's uh, move away from the uh, your commercial venture of public relations and and focus on the whole direct-to-consumer issue. And and remember, if you will, just as a guideline that most of the people who are listening to this are listening from the perspective of dealing with international brands or export brands being imported into the United States. So kind of give that a, a, a nod as you're talking about things. But I'll ask a broad question first. Can you put the whole DTC controversy into perspective for us?
2: I, th- I think I can. Many, many, many years ago, there was very little direct-to-consumer shipping. And we're talking now in the, in the 80s and and early '90s, it was generally illegal in most states for um, American wineries to ship direct to consumers. But it was in the 1990s when the number of producers in the United States really started to expand significantly. Um, at the same time, uh, this expansion, the people behind the expansion of wineries in the United States realized that the three-tier distribution system, whereby you have to a winery sells directly to a wholesaler, wholesaler must sell to retailers, and retailers sell to us, didn't um, weren't able to handle the expansion of all these different brands. And so these brands started to rely on their own tasting rooms. And after that, they started to rely on direct consumer shipping. And they realized that the, the state laws that prevented um, winery shipping really was hampering their their business. And so they went about trying to change these laws. That culminated with a Supreme Court decision in 2005 called Granholm v. Heald, which basically said that if a state allows its own wineries to ship direct to residents in those states. They have to allow other wineries in other states to also ship into that state. There was nothing in that decision, that Supreme Court decision, that suggested this concept of of fairness and non-discrimination didn't also apply to retailers. And yet after the decision, retailers simply weren't included in the updating of the state laws and in a lot of the judicial decisions that came after that. So over the course of the next 15 years, wineries largely got their direct shipping rights into most states, while retailers did not. The impact of direct consumer shipping is, is massive. Today, the winery to consumer shipping channel is probably worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 billion. We don't have an exact figure for retailer to consumer shipping, but uh, my best guess, having been involved in this part of the industry for so long, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to $4 billion also. That's a lot of wine being shipped by both wineries and retailers. Retailers, if they were allowed to ship into most states, would clearly eclipse the amount of wine that's being shipped by wineries. Retailers may only strictly legally ship into 15 states currently, whereas wineries can ship into, I think it's 46 or 47. Okay. And
1: effectively, most of what you just described in terms of the winery direct shipping to consumers really is the only way around. And I, it's not really a way around or a complementary way of um, selling wine uh, within the three tier system. That route is not open. To imported brands who function well, the imported brand is the supplier, but they're selling to an importer, and the importer of an imported brand is more similar to a supplier of a domestic brand where they sit in the three tier system. That's right. One thing that happened recently over the last four years was uh, called the CBMA, the Craft Beverage Modernization and Beverage Act. And um, it uh, dramatically lowered federal excise taxes and for the first time included imported producers in the tax. I looked at that, and so did Bill Earle for that matter, um, and saw maybe a chink in the armor that maybe that was the beginning of legislation that would put imported brands from our perspective into the same category as domestic brands. I think that was a, a big uh, you know, bridge too far, maybe a long leap. Can you comment on that?
2: Sure. I'm particularly where direct shipping is concerned, all direct shipping legislation is done at the state level, not at the federal level. So the extent to which importers, who are, in fact, similarly situated to domestic wineries in the supply chain, the extent to which importers will be able to ship their portfolio direct to consumers depends on states passing laws that allow that to happen. I believe I'm correct in saying that absolutely no states allow importers to ship directly to consumers in different states. And I think there's a good reason for that, Steve. I think the reason is importers simply haven't asked for the privilege.
1: Talk more about that. That clearly was one of uh, the touch points of our initial conversation in preparing for this interview. And it's not one that I've heard espoused by very many people. So you have opened the door. Can you walk us through that and explain the significance of it?
2: Sure. So to reiterate... The domestic producer and the American importer are similarly situated in the product chain. Both these entities, the winery and the importers, sell to wholesalers. Wholesalers then sell to retailers and retailers then sell it to us. Wineries have been very aggressive in pursuing direct consumer shipping rights in different states. Importers have not said boo once. Ever, I've never seen any. Well, I've never seen the National Association of Beverage Importers ever ask or lobby for the right to ship direct into a state. I don't know why that is. I presume it's because um, the most important members of NABI are very large importers controlled by very large brands or importing very large brands who are themselves dedicated to the three-tier system of alcohol distribution importer to wholesaler to retailer and that's a mistake because by not pursuing direct consumer shipping rights from the importer to the to the consumer they've essentially set aside a very important channel um, for distribution and it'll become it would become more and more important as the marketplace becomes more and more crowded with import brands at this point a consumer who wants to obtain an imported wine that's not distributed in their state or that's sold out in their state. They have to go to a retailer in another state who will ship it to them. However, it would be nice for the consumer if they could go directly to the importer. In addition to that, the importer, if they were able to ship direct to consumers, could really put together some compelling consumer facing websites, consumer websites, commercial websites that highlight a variety of different brands. You've got a number of importers who focus, for example, on Italian wines or South African wines or Chilean wines, and it's easy to to imagine how some of these importers could become a really key source for information and wines from specific regions, as well as a source for wines from a number of different regions. But they've simply never made the effort to convince state legislators that they should be allowed to ship also. And so as a result, the degree to which importers are involved in the direct consumer shipping channel depends on the degree to which retailers will sell their wines online.
1: Okay, so now we're in a world, post-COVID world, we'd like to think it's, well, whatever the post-COVID, it's not post-COVID, it's post the beginning of COVID, because it's always going to be with us. But there's this, always has been and there continues to be, and it's growing, this tremendous interest in the part of export brands, both spirits and wines for that matter, to want to come to the U.S., coupled with a lack of understanding of how the three-tier system works and and how to effectively enter the three-tier system. It's still a patchwork of 52 different regulatory entities. As you said, it's state regulated, the 50 states plus Washington, D.C. and Montgomery County, Maryland. And the net, net is there has been no, call it, progression on the side, on the part of importers to try and expand their access to the market that they've pretty much been comfortable in the uh, role that they play within the three-tier system. Now with the growth of internet and the expectations of consumers that Amazon and others set the standard for shipping terms and timeliness and responsiveness and web access and information and so on and so forth, add to that the concept of label identification, or label recognition technology, where you can hold your phone up and WineSearch or in Vivino, will actually take you to a page or information directly on that wine, even if you don't remember the name of it. All of those things have progressed in the world that we live in, and yet the wine industry hasn't moved much at all uh, into that modern age. The the question is, I guess maybe you already talked about it, uh, that they haven't done it, but the the question I'd ask, I guess, is why?
2: Why have importers not taken any steps? Well, importers have a certain responsibility because of the expansion of um, e-commerce, wine e-commerce in the United States, they need to help prepare the brands that they work with to, um, to navigate internet commerce. And that goes back to exactly what you were talking about. That is preparing their materials, preparing their labels, preparing information about the brands to be disseminated efficiently across electronic channels, as well as across the three-tier system. So that's, that's an important thing that import brands and importers have to do together. They have to gather up the materials that can be efficiently distributed and used to educate wholesale sales teams, retailers, as well as consumers. Um, That's about the most, I think, that the import brand can do um, in terms of facilitating their sales in the United States through electronic commerce. Again, the degree to which, say, an Italian wine brand is going to be sold To consumers, direct to consumer or via e-commerce depends almost exclusively on the retailers that their importer is working with. So I can see how an importer uh, might be interested in targeting sales to those retailers who are actively working in the DTC marketplace. Because the fact of the matter is, it's only really a small minority of retailers in the United States that are actively working on the Internet achieving internet sales and shipping interstate. But it would seem to me, particularly an importer in the Northeast, it would seem to me that it would behoove the importer to try to work as closely as they possibly can with those retailers um, to get their brands into those retail outlets where consumers from across the country can access them.
0: Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods.
1: Well, that makes perfect sense, but let's, let's back up to a consumer. They taste the wine when they're maybe not at, at home. It could be in their home state or it could be in, in some other state where they read about it. And they look it up, and then they go online and want to buy it. And it may be available um, in their state, you know, registered in their state, but not necessarily available at their local store or available to be purchased. That is is like diametrically opposed with the way we shop for every other consumer item in the world, from books to shoes to sneakers to food, grocery. Now, um, it's all done uh, directly. So people are exposed to wines that they would like to have, and then find out. Um, you know they're blocked from being able to buy it. Why haven't consumers made a bigger stink, if you will? about this, about not being able to get access to the products that they want, just because they happen to live in Pennsylvania, for
2: example. Yeah, that's because the vast majority of wine consumers are buying fairly inexpensive wines that that don't require direct shipping. The vast majority of consumers are buying what we might call grocery store wines, wines that cost between, say, 7 and $15 a bottle. Shipping a $7 bottle of wine interstate doesn't make much sense economically, right? And if you're buying a $7 bottle of wine, and if you can't find... Uh, you know, the the cheap import that you want, there's another brand that you can substitute for. 10% of the population might be interested in buying something more exclusive, something a little bit more rare, something in smaller supply, something more interesting. Those are the folks who are buying on the internet. Those are the folks who are paying more for a bottle of wine. It's interesting to note that the average bottle of wine shipped in the United States is somewhere in the neighborhood of $43 to $45 a bottle. That is not the average price of what a bottle of wine of a bottle of wine purchased um, at a retailer cost. I'm not exactly sure what that is now, but I, my guess would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to $10 a bottle.
1: I looked it up. $10 is what, what Nielsen says, roughly. Okay, so...
2: So it's an entirely different e-commerce. Wine e-commerce is an entirely different marketplace with different rules and different, different types of consumers.
1: So for a lot of the wineries that I talk to, work with, and, and speak to when I'm traveling, That's the world that they live in. They're not trying to compete in in grocery store wines, although they may not understand the retail environment in the U.S. They do know that they're trying to sell more expensive wines that have a a deeper uh, story to tell to people. So what can producers do in preparation for finding import solutions? One of the biggest issues uh, we talked about and and I wrestle with every day is, is the issue of margin. And oftentimes a winery will say, well, I'm, I'm selling my exporting brand for, call it $4, not four euros, $4, and it'll end up at retail in the U.S. at $16. And if you look at everybody else's margins or markups, and they are different. Everybody's making more money on their wine than I am as the producer. <laughs> I have to own the land, grow the grapes, live with the weather, procure all the things and process it and so on and so forth. That, that seems to be a real disconnect.
2: But this is the nature of the wine industry. I mean, look at a domestic producer, right? The domestic producer who, just take a round number, for example, who sells a bottle of wine out of their tasting room for $100. If they put that into the system, they have to sell that to a wholesaler for $50 a bottle right? Then the wholesaler will mark it up and the retailer will buy it for roughly $75 a bottle, and then they'll sell it to the public for roughly $100 a bottle. This is the nature of the alcohol distribution system in the United States. Now, part of the nature of that system is the fact that we have a state-mandated wholesaler in the middle. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? For everyone involved, from the producers, whether they be in the United States or outside the United States, it would be interesting if the importer or the winery, domestic winery, could sell direct to the retailer and go around the wholesaler, and not use the wholesaler. That's an entire tier of profit that could be split up between the producer slash importer and the retailer or even the consumer, right? But the vast majority of states don't allow what I'm talking about, which is self-distribution. Self-distribution, allowing self-distribution, allowing producers and importers to sell directly to retailers without going to a wholesaler. this This is the key to reforming the alcohol beverage marketplace, to making it more fair for everybody, including the importing producer. And again, it should be the importers who are fighting for this change in the law, but they simply aren't. And again, I can't speak to why they aren't. All I know is it's a dereliction of duty.
1: So let's be clear, though, there are, you know, when I talk to um, export producers, that we're talking about direct-to-consumer interstate between states as opposed to intrastate within a state. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more freedom and flexibility for retailers to do that. Florida is an example. New York is an example of where retailers can ship to consumers in their own state. So that's an opportunity if your local retailer doesn't have that one wine that you just tasted that you're interested in, but it is registered in the state, that you could, in fact, order it. So it's not as Mm -hmm. grim of a vision of the industry as it might be, because obviously there's in in trust state options. But a lot of times people ask me, you know, well, you know, what are my options? And I go through a list of, you know, their options to be selling in the United States. And the, the summary of it is you've got a lot of options and they all suck. I mean, it's not what anybody wants to hear. And I, I sometimes feel like I'm the, you know, the doomsayer. Right. Well, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. But we found a whole lot of people being very creative within the confines of the regulations that we all acknowledge, recognize and deal with that kind of makes that happen. And I'm talking about things like naked wines or some other things that that are different spins on the way, in this case, mostly domestic wines are purchased. But those are really just scratching the outside surface. Do you see any anything on the horizon where this might be changing? Is there any lawsuits? Are there any things going on that you think might be, I go back to a chink in the armor where this might be expandable?
2: There's nothing right now happening that would allow importer producers to more easily sell direct to the consumer, either intrastate or interstate. Okay. Um, nobody's working on this issue at all. Um, the, there's no association of importing producers are putting any pressure on state legislators. There's no association of American importers that are putting pressure on state legislators to, to change any laws that would make it easier for consumers to access the uh, imported wines. Nothing is happening. The most that is happening, actually, is what the National Association of Wine Retailers is doing, and that's what we're lobbying for more retailer to consumer shipping interstate. We're um, we're involved in seven different lawsuits in seven different states, challenging bans on retailer shipping right now. And and by the way, our message to le- to legislators and our message to consumers and our message in our lawsuits centers on imported wines. And the way it centers on imported wines is that sure, a consumer in most states can get their hands on domestic wines. But if a consumer can't find an Italian or a French or a German or a Spanish or a Chilean or an Australian wine in their state, either because it's sold out or it's not or is not sold by a wholesaler there, then that consumer can't get it unless the law allows them to have it shipped to them. So there's very little going on right now that will help importing producers, really with the exception of what NAWR is doing.
1: So alongside the whole issue of direct-to-consumer shipping, there's a whole B2B Business in the wine and spirits industry that's still very nascent and developing. And one of the, the things that changed the game a lot was a company called 750, which basically was an online electronic ordering vehicle. Uh, and information vehicle for retailers who are ordering from distributors. There's a suit now with a company called Provi. Provi has, uh, I guess, is merging or acquiring, I don't know what the, the term is, 750, and it's still in process, so nothing's finalized. But I think it's almost a proxy for some of the things that we've been talking about on the consumer side, on the B2B side. Do you have any comment on that?
2: Well, I've read the complaint that Provi's filed against RNDC and Southern. And essentially what they allege is that the two have conspired together to stop Retailers from using their platform. What the Probee platform does is it allows retailers to buy inventory across different wholesalers using one platform, the Probee platform. It turns out that according to the lawsuit, the uh, RNDC and Southern don't like that. They prefer retailers to use their own in house platforms, electronic platforms, to purchase inventory. So it's an antitrust lawsuit. It's um, who knows where it's going to go. I can tell you that the discovery process of this lawsuit is going to be absolutely fascinating if the wholesalers allow that to go forward. I would not be shocked to see it settled, although wholesalers are notorious for not settling. Nevertheless, if it if it is not settled and they go through the discovery process, we're going to learn an awful lot about the inner workings of RNDC and Southern Wine and Spirits. Uh,
1: flipping us from the other side and talking about the importance of things like the WSWA meeting for export brands who are trying to come to the U.S. I've been going for, I don't know, 30 years. It's evolved dramatically. It's changing dramatically this coming year. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like because uh, they didn't have it the last two years. But what they're talking about is is making it more friendly for brands who are looking for importation and distribution and making it easier or more an incentive perhaps for distributors and importers to be open to pitches or um, exposed to some new brands. I know one of the big challenges I face and my clients often face is they can't get anybody on the phone to listen to their pitch. It's just no, I'm not looking at any new brands now. We all know that new brands are the uh, the blood and guts of the industry and everything from tequila, vodka, jägermeister are examples of products and categories that have tequila now, especially. I mean, back then it was Jose Cuervo. Now it's, it's absolutely huge. So WSWA plays a very important role in its changing. Do you have any comments on that? I mean, they're on the other side when it comes to this argument about uh, direct-to-consumer shipping, but on the other side, they play a very significant role in facilitating sales of beverage alcohol products in the U.S.?
2: Well, let's be clear. The only reason they play a significant role is because the law requires they play a significant role. I go back to self-distribution. If importers and producers were allowed to sell direct to retailers, then wholesalers, the members of WSWA, would be much more willing to pick up new brands because they'd have to actually compete for for business as it is now. In most states, brands must go through a wholesaler. To get to the retailer, it's a quasi-monopoly situation. That said, as quasi-monopolists, the wholesalers are in the best position to help importers and importing brands find a marketplace. There's no question about that. I'd argue that I'd argue that the market allows them to cheat in that regard um, when you don't have competition, when you don't have to convince an importer to use the wholesaler when they're required to use the wholesaler that allows you to offer terms that are not as advantageous to the wholesaler, but more advantageous to you. And it comes back to the fact that the system that we're using right now to distribute wine in the United States is it's broken entirely. And it's based on situations that existed over a hundred years ago.
1: I was just about to to ask you that and talk about tight house laws and that. So take us back to give us some um, history and perspective
2: on when prohibition ended in 1930. The primary concern of the people who were going to write the laws concerning alcohol distribution was that we not return to the situation that existed in 1910, when you had retailers, particularly taverns and saloons, essentially tied to producers. And by that, I mean a brewer in a certain area would give money to a saloon and essentially control the saloon and allow them to open up. But saloon would be required to sell a certain amount. In order to sell that amount, there were some terrible sales tactics that were used and so the saloon became a place where people went and, and really overconsumed in, in terrible, terrible ways. But we now we're talking about nineteen ten, right? And again, nineteen thirty-three the regulators wanted to avoid that situation from happening. But you have to think about nineteen ten. We were in the midst of a huge wave of immigrants into the United States. And in nineteen ten, most dwellings had no electricity. Most dwellings had no air conditioning. People, There was no cross-country air travel. There was very little auto travel. There were very few affordable sporting events. There was no television. There was no internet. There was no streaming services. However, there were the saloons and there were the taverns. And the saloons and the taverns were where folks went to get the news of the day. It's where they went to find out what jobs were available. It's where they went to organize politically and organize political parties. It's where they went to commune with their people. And it's also where they went to, to drink and to eat. And as a result, we had lots and lots and lots of drinking that went on. And it helped form the reasons for prohibition coming about in the first place. But in 1933, that was the big deal. Let's prevent these saloons from being tied to these producers so we don't have this overconsumption. 2022, we've all got electricity. We've all got air conditioning. We've got affordable, used to be affordable, cross-country air travel. Everyone's got a car, streaming services, the internet, television, radio, all these things that didn't exist. The point is, we don't go to the saloon to find out what jobs are available. We don't go to the bars and restaurants to to get the news of the day. We don't go there to organize politically. We don't go there to commune with our people. Still, in 2022, we have this three-tier system that was built to prevent tide houses and the problems that existed in 1910. And it's a bit like the U.S. Army coming out and making an announcement that our new policy is we're going to figure out how to dig deeper trenches faster. You can't have an alcohol regulatory system built on the problems of 1910 when those problems could never emerge today. And yet we do. And as a result, we do. And the, um, the alcohol beverage industry has been retarded um, in its growth.
1: So, as we think about uh, imported brands, where I've been focusing my resources is to help them leverage what they can do, which is in trust state from retailers who do have inventory of the brand uh, using many of the tools that are out there, whether it's Vivino, whether it's information sites like VinePair, whether it's uh, or or WineSearcher, where people, the, the information about products is more available and exposed. It's kind of like the difference of buying a car. It used to be only the dealer knew all the facts and figures. Now it's transparent for everybody. Well, that that level of not just transparency, but knowledge about wine or accessibility of knowledge about wine is pretty widely available. The challenge is getting the products themselves. So within a given state, um, you do have an opportunity. And I, I think that's where retailers are really doing a good job, those that are expanding in, into e-commerce, because they recognize... Not only can they sell to a wider audience, they can provide greater value to that audience as well as their local geographic
2: audience that's absolutely right, but the retailers are the retailers rely a lot on importers and wholesalers to get the information that they that they need to put up on their website there's nothing there's nothing worse than browsing a retailer's website and coming to a wine that's interesting and seeing that there's no label there um, and no information essentially about the wine, except perhaps the, the appellation and the price. That's partly the uh, the retailer's fault for sure, but it might also be the importer's fault. And for that matter, it might partly be the producers.
1: I, I, I think that's where it is. Actually, you hit on one of my not pet peeves. Something that I'm really adamant about is that and I've said this in some other interviews, and if you want to call me at uh, or email me at steve at com, I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone who's listening. But the idea is brands are in control of how they they appear online, that you can – there's a whole suite of things that um, – supply or uh, sites like Wine Search and Vivino need, high-resolution images in certain formats and so forth. And in my book, I detail a list that I put together with the – wine searcher on the information that they need to optimize brands. This is something that doesn't cost a winery much money, um, doesn't require a lot of time, requires a little bit of technical expertise, but you know, your, your, your children or your grandchildren, I'm, I'm sure, are more than capable of doing it. And it, it puts you on an even keel with all the major brands that are out there in the world where we will be competing in the future, and that's online as opposed to just in the store. So that's something Everybody can do, but I think the burden falls on the producers to do that.
2: And it's, it has to be recognized. This is block and tackle work. I mean, this this work has to be done as a matter of rote.
1: Yet, here's a quote. Mike Osborne was quoted as saying only 5% of the wines that are listed on wine.com have uh, complete documentation, if you will, or the, the information information. People want on the wine, current ratings, reviews, uh, wine pairings, winemaker notes, vintage things, and all that. Uh, only 5%. And uh, when I was interviewing Borkard Nessen, who's the analyst for Rabobank, he was uh, railing on, on, on the same issue. Come on, guys, this is relatively easy for everybody to do. So if we all got together and made sure it got done, Everybody would be in much better shape, and it would minimize, I think, the the, the DTC issue because you're maximizing your presence of brands online, and that's.
2: And yet, wine.com is still willing to put up those wines for sale without having that information, right? So it's not as though they're not willing to go forward without the information and the data that they need it to make it complete. So it's partly the retailer's fault too. The retailers could put a stop to this if they wanted to immediately by saying, "We'd love to sell your wine, and we'd love to uh, promote your wine." But until you get to see information that we need, we are not going to do that. So everyone's to blame at this. In the end, you're right. I mean, the information has to come from the producer. It's going to go to the the importer after that. Maybe it's going to go to the wholesaler after that. And finally, it's going to get to the retailer. But there ought to be an efficient way.
1: Yeah. And Frank, it's been one of the things that I've been working on. And the idea is collaborate between and amongst all of them or amongst everybody to kind of spread the burden. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It's relatively easy to do, and the assets are accessible because they already exist within an organization. The challenge is just to gather them and communicate them.
2: So, what is the main information you think needs to be provided besides a high res image?
1: Well, high res image logos and and dual uh, different aspect ratios vertical and horizontal Uh, logo on a black background, logo on a white background. If retail wanted to do any things or or any of the distributors wanted to make up some things, most current scores for the currently sold vintage winemaker notes for the things that are being sold now. And whatever the background story is, the story of the winery, because every winery has a unique story. Because if they didn't have a unique story, they'd be the exact same as the one next to them. And we know that Chateau Dauriac is very different from Chateau Mouton, right? So I think that it's a tremendous way of presenting your brand in a way that resonates with this new audience of millennials. They want to know the story behind the brand. They don't want to know necessarily about sauteed gooseberries and other flavor notes and things that, that they don't know anything about. But they do want to know is it sustainably produced? Are pesticides used in it? How is it harvested? How are the workers treated? Those kinds of things. Is there some history that about the land that that makes it uh, particularly interesting? Those are stories that go beyond scores and winemaker notes and all the rote wine Geeky stuff that we all talk about, and I think uh, what I find is everybody's got a story, but not everybody is capable of articulating. And uh, well,
2: that's my job, and
1: mine. Yeah, there you go.
2: <laughs> the the collection of things that um, that you say are needed, yes, indeed they are needed, but it's also it's also certainly a collaboration in order to create those things. Part of that information has to come directly from the producer, but where the uh, the scores are concerned, right? That's gonna be the importer's job to gather up those because it's large if they're-
1: Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely collaboration. And I, that's what I would like to see, okay, not pointing the finger at who's responsible for doing this, but ask the question, how do we get this done together? And that's something that I try and facilitate uh, with my clients because, as I said, it's relatively easy to do and doesn't cost a lot of money um, and has significant impact immediately and, and is evergreen long-term. So why would, why would you not just jump on this? Thing? Anyway, I don't have the answer to that question. It's just, it just one of those conundrums. Conundrum of life. My guest this week has been Tom Wark of uh, National Association of Wine Retailers. Uh, of Tom Wark Communications, he's a PR guy in his spare time. I think that's how he actually makes money. And he's also the author of the Fermentation Blog, which I was uh, pleased to find out in this conversation. He's been writing regularly every other day or so for eighteen years. Tell me how people can access your
2: my blog. Recently, my blog has been turned into a newsletter, and it can be found at tomwork.substack.com. Um, and um, again, we publish every uh, about every other day there. It's a, um, a paid and a free publication. So um, I urge everyone to check it out. Um, I tend to write about the issues that Steve and I are talking about right now. And he's very forthright in the things that he
1: says. That's what
2: makes it so much fun.
1: Tom, if people want to uh, reach out to you directly, can you give us your email and um, phone number if you're
2: interested? The email is tom at... Wark Communications, S-W-A-R-K, Communications, pluralcom And the phone number is area code 971-332-5057. Um, and you're calling Salem, Oregon.
1: Cool. All right. Um, thank you, Tom, for a very interesting conversation. I, I, I look forward to having another one where we, we see how far the industry has come since the last time we spoke. But I hope we speak soon. I do too.
2: Thanks, Steve.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.